Welcome to The Intersection. For this episode, we start in the 1950s and the strange story of Lee Gordon, an American who arrived in Sydney in 1953 and within a year had kick-started the Australian concert circuit for international acts, as well as opening the door for a legion of Australian acts. But it's a strange story, all right, as you'll hear. So let's get to it. The Ginchiest. Now comes the news that every radio listener has been hoping to hear. All right, first to the microphone, up this way. Right up close, your name? Uh, Corporal Challen. Corporal Challen? Hello, Argonauts. Good rowing. Good rowing. Without any inhibitions of any kind, I make it quite clear that Australia looks to America free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. The words we heard were by Prime Minister John Curtin in 1941. They are often cited by historians as the moment where American influence over Australia began to usurp that of Britain. In truth, it took a lot longer than that. Even Curtin himself referred to Australians as, quote, trustees of the British way of life. As the 50s dawned, Australia remained doggedly British. However, American influence in Australian culture skyrocketed as the 1950s progressed. This was delivered most emphatically not from a politician, but from an American expatriate with a shady backstory. This guy. Man, like I just returned from that big fat hall. Didn't dig that uh, nothing show at all. That mess still gives the uh, creeps a thrill, but it's a drag to me. Fair Dinkumville. Get the message? Yeah. made the scene, but uh, here's the bit. Some broad sang soprano, and I had to split. That uh, top 40 cat called it a gasser of a deal. Yeah, like the hasty tasty serves a cuckoo meal. Get the message? Yeah. Lee Gordon, entrepreneur, concert promoter, record label owner, international man of mystery. And as we just heard, a faux beat poet to boot. That song was called Get the Message, released in 1959 on his own label, Leiden. The flip side, She's the Ginchius, once appeared on a compilation album called Antipodean Atrocities, a commemoration of the worst Australian records. It wasn't that bad. We'll play it for you at the end of this episode. Lee Gordon's period as a concert promoter, running his own company, Big Show Productions, from 1954 to 1963, quite simply put Australia on the map as a touring market for international artists, as well as providing an amazing platform for local artists. 
It is this fact that makes Gordon such a pivotal figure in dragging white Australian culture from its stodgy Anglophilia into something altogether more exciting. It proved the Australian public were more up for excitement and a certain cosmopolitanism than the lawmakers had ever given them credit for. And it was Gordon's first few tours that finally ended a racist ban on African-American musical groups performing in this country. Most of the music you'll be hearing today is from artists who Lee Gordon brought to Australia or artists he released on his label. run through all the names Gordon brought to Australia would take up half this episode. But let's just say Gordon brought out Frank Sinatra on three occasions, Dizzy Gillespie, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, and as for the rock and roll artists, well, except for Elvis, pretty much all the big names of American rock and roll made it to Australia. Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, Gene Vincent, Chuck Berry, and this guy, Eddie Cochran. Given its small population at the time, this country was unbelievably well served for touring artists in the early rock and roll years, largely thanks to Lee Gordon. This exposure could not help but influence the next generation of Australian musicians and aficionados alike. According to an associate, quote, Lee divided people into two categories, the swingers and the squares. Needless to say, Gordon was a swinger. He never owned property, had few assets and liked his finances liquid. He was a prodigious pot smoker at a time when it was still underground in this country and he had close connections with, quote, scientific types working in the field of psychedelics. Drugs would play a role in his sudden departure from Australia in 1963 and possibly had something to do with his mysterious death shortly afterwards. And then there were some of the other associations. There were some definite links with the notorious King's Cross crime figures, but how deep? And where did the money come from? Who was Lee Gordon? Catman's are coming, you better look out. Catman's are coming, running about. Catman's are coming, looking for a girl. Better hide your sister, my hand. C is for the crazy hairdo that he wears around. A is for the arms that he'll sneak around your waist. For the taste of the lips belong to you, Catman. Catman! Ah! Get it! 
There seems to be some agreement that he was born as Leon Lazar Gavorchner. Some say in Florida in 1917, others say in Michigan in 1923. By the early 1940s, he was apparently booking jazz bands in the Detroit area. A few years later, he was in Lima, Peru, running a mail-order business. Not long after that, he was in Havana, Cuba, exporting cigars back to the United States. He may or may not have been booking bands at Havana's famous Tropicana Club. Watch out because of heels in your mess. I better watch out or you're gonna be kissed. I better watch out because of heels in your mess. Apparently, it was at the Tropicana that Gordon first met Frank Sinatra in 1946. Sinatra was in the company of mafia boss Lucky Luciano at the time. As is now known, Sinatra's Havana shows coincided with a meeting of all mob bosses known as the Havana Conference. Sinatra keeps cropping up in the Lee Gordon story. I've got the world on a string And I'm sitting on a rainbow I've got the string around my finger What a world, what a life I'm in love I've got a song that I sing I can make the rain go Anytime I move my finger Lucky me, can't you see I'm in love Back in the States, one story says that Gordon got rich quickly running retail stores, selling TV sets and electrical goods and then blew it just as quickly bankrolling some Broadway shows. By 1953, he was trying his luck in Toronto when he faithfully met an Australian in, where else, a used car lot. The Australian spruiked his home country, telling Lee that there was a yearning for American entertainment and in fact, all things American. Gordon was all ears and by September 1953, he was in Sydney. He traveled alone, but had already been married five times to three different women. Gordon started off in Sydney back in the electrical goods racket, utilising novel American techniques such as telephone marketing to great success. But Gordon had kept up his American showbiz connections and it seems that bringing American talent to the Australian concert circuit, or rather to create an Australian concert circuit, was always his plan. His accountant, Alan Heffernan, says that by mid-1954, Gordon announced unexpectedly that they were now in the international concert business and that he, Heffernan, a suburban accountant with no entertainment business experience, was to get to work on it. Not only that, the tour was booked for the following month. Buddy Rich, Artie Shaw and Ella Fitzgerald. Not playing the usual theatres, but in oversized boxing stadiums, such as the Sydney Stadium and the West Melbourne Stadium. Unbelievably, given the lack of local experience and the unprecedented choice of venues, Gordon's chutzpah paid off. Fitzgerald, for one, was hugely popular, and whilst the tour only just broke even financially, things were off and running. Operating under the name Big Show Proprietary Limited, Gordon at first shared office space with colourful entrepreneur Jack Rooklyn in Kings Cross. The boxing stadiums were run by a group led by colourful Melbourne identity John Wren, 
In a previous episode of The Intersection, we spoke about the 1954 Ella Fitzgerald tour and also the third big show tour, headlined by Louis Armstrong and the All-Stars. These were the first tours of Australia by African-American bands since the ill-fated Sonny Clay Plantation Orchestra tour of 1928. It's unknown whether Gordon was aware that White Australia had a ban on African-American bands when he booked these tours. The Fitzgerald tour, of course, was controversial in that she missed the first few shows due to herself and her entourage being removed from the Pan Am flight in Hawaii, whilst clarification was sought as to whether the airline was breaking Australian laws by flying a band of African-American musicians into the country. The Armstrong tour a few months later had no such problems. So Gordon's bookings in 1954 finally lifted the racist colour bar which had affected Australian live music for decades. The first nine months of the big shows, from July 1954 to early 55, are quite amazing to look at. In addition to the Fitzgerald tour, Gordon bought out Louis Armstrong's All-Stars, Johnny Ray on two occasions, Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra, all to massive success. The organisation raked in over £1 million in those nine months, about $20 million today. They also paid out big. Sinatra was paid over US $100,000 for his tour in January 1955, featuring 14 shows in Sydney and Melbourne. It was bigger money than he was getting in Las Vegas at the time. This fact was not lost on American entertainment managers who now began spruiking their rosters to the Lee Gordon organisation. Suspiciously, John Wren's West Melbourne Stadium burnt down the night before Sinatra's last Melbourne concert. Today's Melbourne Festival Hall was quickly rebuilt on the same spot. The unprecedented success caused an unexpected problem. The Reserve Bank of Australia hurriedly announced that only US $750 would be made available to American entertainers appearing in Australia. This was potentially disastrous as Gordon had paid all the US talent in American dollars. And so here is yet another quirk in the Lee Gordon story. A little-known associate entered the picture and transferred Australian currency to a similarly unknown American associate. This American associate would then pay the equivalent American dollar amount into Gordon's US account. And so the talent could be paid in US dollars. The Reserve Bank and the Taxation Office remained suspicious. Blossom. Lotus blossom. 
must blossom Leaves do Johnny Ray's Australian tour in March 1955 set records which stood for years to come. He played 26 sellout shows at the 11,000-seat Sydney Stadium and whipped up an hysteria not seen again until the Beatles toured in 1964. Even though I know it's just a Johnny Ray was a gay man at a time when it was absolutely illegal. Heffernan, Gordon's accountant, wrote of a situation in Melbourne where an undercover cop tried to entrap him. And we have it on very good authority that Ray endured an extortion attempt in Sydney, one in which Gordon had to call on a notorious Sydney criminal boss, one with strong connections in the police force, to shut it down. At a price, of course. Despite all this amazing success in only nine months, the Big Show organisation soon enough went broke. Trying to diversify to a more adult market, 1955 tours by Bob Hope and Abbott and Costello flopped, completely unsuitable for the large venues they were booked into. The first visit by an American roller derby entourage was an even bigger stiff. There were a couple of lean years before the rock and roll bands arrived. The first of these was in January 1957, with Bill Haley and the Comets, Big Joe Turner and Laverne Baker, and it was a massive success. Girls, his name is Tiny Tim, and if you go out with him, you will soon discover Tiny Tim is a lover from his heart, and he'll always try to do his part. A Tiny Tim is a lover. Tiny Tim is a lover You will be 
ties a tiny Tim is a lover Mysteriously, Gordon cropped up all over the place. In 1957, he met Elvis Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, and after the payment of a hefty cash side deal to Parker himself, booked Elvis on a US tour which also included a few dates in Canada. These are famous because they were the only times Presley would ever perform outside the USA. connection with Frank Sinatra also continued. A second Australian tour ended before it began when Frank threw a tantrum at Honolulu Airport and returned to Los Angeles. It was a financial disaster for Gordon, but he got Sinatra out another two times in the late 50s and booked a couple of Sinatra's stateside tours. The connections Lee must have had. Sinatra would later be best man at Gordon's next wedding in Acapulco. We're not looking too closely at the Australian artist Gordon worked with, but he did propel the career of Johnny O'Keefe, managing him for a while and getting him spots on the big shows. Yeah, I walk across the burning sands Just to prove that I'm your lover man Swing a hammer, pound of steel on steel Just to show my love for you is real Well, don't you know that my love is real Well, don't you know my love is strong as steel Well, don't you know 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 Pretty baby, oh, my love and belongs to you O'Keefe was on the second all rock and roll tour in 1957 with a truly astounding lineup: Little Richard, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent and Alice Leslie who was marketed at the time as the female Elvis. None of these pioneering artists had toured outside of North America at this stage. As 
As we have said, there are a lot of gaps in the Lee Gordon story and some things which don't seem to add up. None more so than in 1958, when he outright disappeared for six months, leaving other members of his organisation to run his various enterprises. All, apparently, had absolutely no idea where he was. Eventually, he was located in a psychiatric institution in Hawaii. It would not be the last time he was institutionalised. Mental illness can now be added to this strange tale. A stranger lying on a barroom floor Had drank so much he could drink no more And so he fell asleep with a troubled brain To dream that he rode on a downbound train The engine with blood was sweaty and damp And brilliantly lit with a brimstone lamp an imp of fuel was shovel and bones while the furnace rang with a thousand growls. The parlor was filled with lager beer. The devil himself was the engineer. The passengers were most a motley crew. Some were foreigners and others he knew. Rich men in broadcloth, beggars and rags, handsome young ladies in wicked old hags. In 1960, Gordon founded the first annual Australian International Jazz Festival, featuring Dizzy Gillespie, Sarah Vaughan, Dakota Staten and Coleman Hawkins, among others. Amazing lineup, and incredible to think that only six years earlier these African American artists would have had a hard time being allowed to perform in this country. Yet strangely, it was a financial disaster. The stadiums were possibly too big, and having a bill packed with so many artists may have worked fine for rock and roll, but in jazz this meant much shorter performances for each act, something that irritated both the performers and audiences alike. 
With finances once again in critical condition, the notorious Abe Saffron officially bought into the Gordon organisation. With Saffron Bank rolling, new ventures were tried, such as Sydney's first drive-in hamburger joint, plus a, quote, high-class strip club. Both ventures were short-lived. Gordon, with Saffron's backing, also started Sydney's first drag show, which they later sold and it became the long-running Lee Girls. Comedian Lenny Bruce was brought to Australia by Gordon in 1962, but he never got out of Sydney. Lenny Bruce was already in poor shape, tormented by the constant arrests for obscenity in the US, not to mention his heroin addiction. Unable to score in Sydney, he was bombed on painkillers the whole time. True to form, opening night ended abruptly when he told a heckler to go fuck themselves. The tabloids splashed the horror all over their front pages. The rest of the engagements were canned, although he did play a sparsely attended show at the Rose Bay Winter Garden in Sydney's East. Incredibly, a recording of this show surfaced a few years ago. Mm. I want to tell you so many things, but I sure don't want to get arrested. <laughs> hmm. I'll call all of you. I had all sorts of really good fantasies. They, <laughs> I thought of one thing. Uh, let's say that, let's make, uh, I'll change the four-letter word to, um, kill, that's the word, kill you, but you know what it is. So I think what I was going to do, you know, I was going to get a dummy and have an indestructible tape recorder sewn inside him. And the curtain would open up, and you'd hear, kill you, kill you, kill you, get up, shut up, man, he's taking an axe, kill you, can't stop it. The last year of Lee Gordon's life is, unsurprisingly, sketchy. There are stories of drug use, mental illness and bankruptcy. What is known is that in July 1963 he was arrested for passing a forged prescription for pethidine, an opioid painkiller. When his court date came around he was notably absent. Lee, his wife Arlene and their young daughter had fled the country. He ended up in London, apparently looking to branch into concert promotion in Britain. It was not to be. After disappearing for a couple of days, he was found dead in a London hotel room in November 1963. It was not the hotel he and his family were actually staying at. Police apparently considered the death mysterious, yet he was hurriedly ruled to have died of cardiac arrest. No further investigation occurred.
turn to America which Australia undertook in the 50s was not without its downsides, politically and culturally. And it was certainly not a revolutionary change. America was still an English-speaking nation run by white men. In the words of the historian David McLean, Australia viewed the US as, quote, neither completely alien nor completely familiar. In this episode, we have looked at some of these more unfamiliar aspects of American culture which Australians took to in the 1950s. Via rock and roll and jazz, African-American culture finally made a permanent indent in Australian culture and further destabilised the already teetering white Australia policy. The manoeuvres of the mysterious Lee Gordon played a part in all of this, and for that reason he has a pivotal role in Australian cultural history. So let's raise a glass to Lee Gordon whoever the hell he really was. Like men, I may be beat, but I still can swing. Yearsville men don't mean a thing. Even though her home's in old Paddo, she's the ballinest chick that you'll ever know. She's the ginchiest. Like mother life can't pass me by. I'll be making scenes until I die. I dig the cool, fat feel of romance Cause she wears a skirt and I wear pants She's the ginchiest Thank you for listening to The Intersection. My name is Michael Fisher, production by Rob Marchenberg. You'll find a playlist of all the music in this episode in the show notes. We'd like to give special thanks to Eastside Radio, 89.7 FM. You can contact us via email at theintersection at eastsidefm.org. And don't forget to follow The Intersection on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just search The Intersection underscore Eastside FM. That's The Intersection underscore Eastside FM. The Intersection was recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty never ceded.